Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. Episode 52, Karma. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fusion Health Radio. Again, I'm Anthony Santa and that's Dr. Michael Smith. Today we're talking about karma is, the, I guess, the topic of the day. And um, before we get too far into uh, today's subject, which I'm sure is going to be uh, infinitely interesting, once again, I have a blank page in front of me and I don't know what this, uh, what direction this conversation is going to go, uh, which makes it a whole lot of fun for me and hopefully a lot of fun for you too, dear listener. Uh, episode 51 was a uh, real mouthful. Um, self-quantification, old school. Uh, Michael, do you want to give us a quick recap? Uh, so there's this kind of a theme uh, to where the podcast is going, and that theme is based a bit on where my medical practice is going, because, I mean, people ask me for advice. I'm almost ethically bound to, to give them the best advice. So um, essentially the direction that I'm trying to bring people's attention to is what we would call a somatic state or a felt sense present uh, somatization of your day or that kind of stuff. Basically, it's just how your muscles and nerves and bones and your tummy and your butterflies and your hormones and neurotransmitters all pile up in your body into a kind of sensation state that uh, we learn to ignore, right? So we just sort of take for granted that we feel the way we feel. This is kind of a, <laughs> maybe a bit of an embarrassing metaphor for some of us, but an easy way to see this is if you were to imagine, you know, you're taking your friend to go off to college and they get into the dormitory and you come back for Christmas to visit them and you knock on the door and you open the door and this green gas comes out of the door frame into your face and your friend is there waving at you as if there's nothing wrong and you're basically on the floor with tears coming out of your eyes like you're in a bad <laughs> Bruce Willis movie and they wonder what's wrong with you and you're like, the smell is killing me. And they're like, what are you talking about? And then you kind of get in there and notice there's 10 pounds of, you know, dirty socks under their bed <laughs> because college students don't have time for laundry. Uh, anyway, but it's just to bring up that kind of funny part of humans is that there's certain sensual experiences that once they're around a lot, you don't notice them. And I think one of the biggest opportunities we, we have with uh, our spare time and our attention or the fact that you're always in your body anyway is to start noticing little opportunities about how we hold tension or how we respond to things or... Uh, how our mindset is different when we think about the future and the past, or how um, maybe we think about the difference between, you know, our sexual partnership and, you know, our business partnership. Uh, hopefully they're quite different, <laughs> you know, in, in a lot of ways. So it's just to bring people's attention to this idea of self-quantification, but more in the old school sense of like Qigong and yoga and meditation and uh, like how animals are always aware of how they move and feel because they have to be. You know, we have phones to tell us what to do now, you know, in kind of a weird way. So it's even harder for us in, in the modern world, in, in my experience anyways, to default to now, default to is, default to sensation. Because right now our default to is next, what else, over there, you know, so... Uh, and also with the self-quantification tools we have now with uh, wearable, you know, jewelry that's linked to your computer and probably your phone too, <laughs> uh, which are great things to help people, I think, get some numbers and some baselines. 
And sure, there's things you can do to change those numbers and baselines, you know, if it's exercise or diet or supplements. But um, in my experience, there's always this deep natural baseline, which is, well, how do you actually feel if you take a moment and kind of move around and experience your bones and joints and habits and, you know, uh, your day, your week, your family, your debt, <laughs> and where it sits in you. And if you can start to work with your actual existence of sensation and modify it, modify your choices, uh, maybe change what you're using your phone for sometimes, then there's a chance that your awareness or self-quantification is going to steer you very gradually into different uh, habits and different states and eventually different memories of yourself as a being. And I mean, that's a lot to kind of maybe unpack for people in, in a moment, but that's the essence of like basically Eastern and indigenous tradition is so in this moment, your existence is dot, 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 fill in the blank. And from here, you know, now what, but now what in the next moment, not now what in 10 years. Mm -hmm. So it's just to bring the, the lens of, of our conversations in a bit, because I wanted to talk about this too. Um, but before that, I wanted to give people some contextual kind of ways to just notice that noticing, uh, well, it either helps or it hurts at first, you know, because, oh, that, that's weird. I better do something about it. Or, oh, that's horrible. I wonder if maybe somebody else can make it go away. Right. But as long as we're beginning to check in to quantify or qualify, you know, the dashboard lights of our body's existence anyway, and our emotional existence, and hopefully where we get stuck the most in our head, now we have the tools and maybe what I call the steering wheel, uh, based on, I can't remember what number of this book is going to be, but I think it's going to be called uh, Grabbing Your Life by the Wheel. It's just sort of a group of little essays about um, the importance of coming back to now and, and being aware that even the slightest little nudge to, uh, towards wellness or away from addiction or whatever, the tiniest little thing uh, gives us a bit more confidence and a bit more light, a bit more breath. You know, a couple of conversations ago, we talked about Jordan Peterson's thing and, you know, he's a psychologist. So his thing is all about, you know, do you understand your understanding? Mm -hmm. You know, do you understand your conditioning uh, from the level of, you know, how we would think about psychology and, you know, mental stuff. So it's all basically this, the same conversation. You know, we talked about how to look at the world through like Jordan Peterson's 12 rules and, you know, how to be more consciously aware of your impact on society, you know, as you become more mature and more conscious. You know, and that's a pretty cool thing to do. Mm -hmm. And then the last conversation is, well, let's bring this into your body now, more about feeling and state and, you know, the sort of the animal self, if you will. So today I wanted to kind of lean into something that um, is just a, a fun conversation to have with people in the West, because in the West it's taken in a really, really unique way that kind of propels us out of the conversation um, because it's almost too abstract and, and almost too unkind in the way that we frame it uh, to have any use for it. You know, and unless we're the pretentious people who feel like we're winning the game of karma and then we can walk around in our, I don't know, I'm trying not to make fun of, I don't know, the, the arrogance of certain new age kind of habits and stuff like that because let's make them bad people it, it just makes them kind of unaware that some of the tools in their toolbox are, are kind of um too easy to lever people in the modern world into places that are still painful mm -hmm. well the uh the conversation we had last week uh, the self-quantification thing um afterward it left me uh, with um left me thinking and uh Remind, remind, 
reminded me of a number of examples in my life where um, I saw people who just were so out of touch with themselves um, that they uh, they had no idea that they were harming themselves. Um, uh, real quick, one example, I had a buddy at college um, who was a pretty snappy dresser, always wore these really fancy leather shoes and these snappy pants, always kind of like a, I don't know, gangster punk rock guy, however you want to describe it. Peacock? Yeah, maybe. Anyways, I remember uh, seeing him once early in the day and then later in the day, around eight o'clock at night at the at the school, we were still working in the studio and I see him there and he's sitting, he's got one of his shoes off and his foot is all bloody. And I said, dude, what the hell happened? He says, I have no idea. And I looked at the bottom of his foot and it looked like somebody had taken um, a protractor, because that's the thing with the little point on it, right? And stabbed his, the, the heel of his foot about a thousand times and it was bloody and his sock was all bloody. He always wore the black shoes with the white socks, right? <laughs> high, high fashion in the 80s. Okay. Anyways, um, he uh, apparently he had his shoes rehealed. So, uh, and there was something that sort of poked through. And I said, when did you get that done? Well, yesterday. And I said, and when did you notice? Well, about five minutes ago. So he'd been walking around for the whole day being stabbed in the foot. And it wasn't until, I don't know what, that he finally noticed it. So anyways, I mean, it was... It, the, the, the conversation of just being aware of one's um, one's body and doing something simply just to sort of tune into oneself instead of using a device, a Fitbit or an iPhone or whatever the heck it is. Um, Can you feel that there's a nail in your heel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the upshot of all that, we always used to, uh, we came up with the phrase of, you know, being comfortable with the limp. Uh, yeah, right. You know, the, the idea that um, uh, we, we go through life, or in this case, we were going through uh, going through school and all the horribleness of the school, including late nights and early mornings and uh, not a lot of money and trying to make it stretch and all the, all the different difficulties it was to be in college, uh, eventually we just got comfortable with that limp and mm-hmm. you just sort of carried on and you just kept on slogging away, just trying to make a go of it, right? So um, it, was, it was a very interesting uh, uh, reflection that I had beyond that. And so coming back today and sort of hearing you saying that, you know, we're digging into the like, little, little bit more... Um, maybe less medical side of things and, you know, the more uh, mindset style of side of things. Um, I'm just curious as all hell as to how karma is going to dig up old memories of mine from the 80s. <laughs> so I've had this conversation, um, I don't know, a few hundred times. And usually it actually happens uh, either in a public speaking uh, context when it's about spiritual practice or... Uh, recovering from addiction or PTSD, because those are things I'm pretty passionate about, because those things that, uh, you know, those are cool beds I guess I walk through in my life. And um, so this little parable that I'm going to share as a part of this conversation uh, is very poignant to people who are going through a lot in in that way. It's also very poignant and, and very informative for people who see themselves uh, and live their lives as what we would call a, a spiritual person. You know, and there's a lot of, uh, to the spectrum of what that might mean. I mean, you could be talking about hard, you know, seriously white wing, uh, sorry, white wing, you know, Catholic or Christian or something. And then um, even to the point of even new age woo woo stuff where, you know, you might say they're even more religious, although they're making it up in a way, than the hardcore, you know, traditional religious people. Because these people have a book, and it's a pretty serious book, and if you screw up the rules in the book, you're probably going to hell, or something, based on the book. 
um, or at least the people trying to sell the book. <laughs> and then you got people writing the book, you know, day by day, right? And I'm not suggesting anyone's doing this better or worse or anyone's winning. I'm sure if you think you're winning, you're maybe going to need to take a step back from how you understand what this is really about, but uh, you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's going to be a parable I'm going to share, and it's going to be a bit of a parable in practice. So we're going to kind of basically become a whole bunch of different people doing a whole bunch of different things. And as we do that, we're going to need to kind of play with it a little bit. And I'm hopefully, ho hoping that, uh, I don't think I've ever had this conversation with Anthony before. We, we may uh, have over years of knowing each other. The conversation around karma? Uh, well, as I get into the parable, oh, okay. you may or may not remember it, but I'm hoping that you can kind of dance along with the parable. And, and as we get into each of these kind of karmic states, uh, throughout that story, you could kind of maybe just, uh, help the listeners and help the conversation by reflecting what your experience of that is like. Sure. Just because it's going to, you know, keep the conversation a conversation. Cause usually when I share a parable, it's about a 22 minute, you know, shut up and listen to what I'm going to say because this is this ancient parable, okay? <laughs> well, it's not actually ancient because it's uh, it's an ancient idea told in the modern way. But before we get into that fun parable, and it's the parable is actually about being on a luxury liner in the 1920s, by the way, hmm. just to pique your memory, just in case you've ever had that conversation. But before that, I think it's reasonable uh, to just speak to what it is that the word karma means. Sure. Now, uh, with tongue-in-cheek humor, and I hope our listeners are used to the fact that we like to poke fun at things just a bit, because that's how we're, we're Canadians, eh? And that's how Canadians <laughs> be polite. We just sort of poke fun to poke the bear. You know, how how, how, how mad is that bear? <laughs> not, not less qualified. West Coast Canadians, okay. West, okay, pardon me. West Coast Canadians, you're right. Absolutely. <laughs> the left coast. <laughs> that's right. So um, I'm going to read the actual definition that... Uh, there's a few on, you know, online and stuff like that from different encyclopedias. But uh, I picked this one because it kind of really said something that I wanted to make a point with. So I'm just going to grab my little note. So one aspect of how we look at karma in, in general is what we would call uh, what events uh, follow an effect. Right. So if we looked at what happened in 9-11 in New York, I mean, in the sense of how we think of karma as cause and effect, you know, whoever decided to drive some planes into somebody else's buildings, and I don't know anyone who actually knows for sure what happened there, um, in the sense of exactly what happened. Somebody drove planes into buildings, clearly. Well, there are people who think that didn't happen, but anyway, I'm not going to go there. But we can see how many ripples went out from that day. And, you know, it's been almost 20 years of, you know, an entire planet still kind of dealing with that bee sting, mm -hmm. right? So in the, in the sense of there's a, an event and then there's an effect, that that's one way to understand it, right? But that's so abstract, right? You know, it's kind of, I mean, I recently watched some alien movie because I was bored. And I mean, for some reason, it just occurred to me, like the 9-11 thing is almost as abstract as an alien attack with respect to the context of being self-aware and self-conscious and applying that attention and awareness to self-evolution, uh, right? Because if your life is determined, your thoughts are determined, your karma is determined by something that happened in another part of the world or even in, I mean, hundreds of miles, thousands of miles away, it's relatively on another planet with respect to what karma is really about. So I'm just picking that example because it's it sort of demonstrates the, you know, the pebble in the water and the ripples going outwards 
um, as too, at the, at, as a view of karma that's too far at a distance from what it means. Okay. Okay. So here's a more fun kind of scholarly definition. <clears throat> I'm just turning to read my notes. So if I, the sound gets goofy. Okay. So karma, the sum of one's actions in this and previous states of existence. The equals. Hold on, I'm just I'm just pausing for. Okay, <laughs> that's a lot of words. Karma. Colon. <laughs> the sum of one's actions. I think we can go down to that. It's pretty good. The sum of one's actions in this and previous states of existence. That can mean a lot of different things. Viewed as deciding their fate in future states of existence. So whatever went on in the past, obviously has changed the nature of the one in the now moving towards the then. The thing that changes the meaning of that is that whatever you did in the past is now locked in with some kind of value system to change in some kind of, I don't know, mathematical formula of, you know, okay, you got 10 demerits two weeks ago because you, you know, threw away a, a cardboard cup instead of recycling it, asshole. Sorry. <laughs> Right. So then you go and, you know, you drive over a nail in your neighbor's yard because you're trying to like move something and, uh, you got a flat tire and then, you know, there's this part of your mind, which is, oh, I shouldn't have thrown away that piece of cardboard because now I got to fix this piece of rubber or whatever. So there's a lot of ways that the mind stretches out between the past and the future and, you know, value and, you know, how much debt you got or how much credit you got. Mm -hmm. Right. So just being clear, that's really important to keep stretching out the past and future and the pluses and minuses. Cause I would change that definition to something more like this karma, the nature of one's intentions in this, <coughs> excuse me, uh, and previous states of being, uh, or previous states of intention, you know, are going to determine or decide what happens next with your intention. You're going to say that again. Gonna. So if you're thinking of karma, you're looking at the nature of your intention, right? Because if I, it isn't that I threw away a cardboard cup. It's that the nature of my intention was, eh, screw the planet, if I was to frame it in that kind of value system. Okay. So that's the nature of my intention. And that's going to be informed by all previous states of existence. And now I could look at that as past lives, but that's, I mean, that's a pretty distant view from today. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and again, I'll come back to why that, that's a funny glitch, but, um, think of all the, di the different states of existence you've experienced in your life previous to this. Okay. I mean, that's everything you've experienced, obviously. Yeah. Right. But your intentions have been your responses to those experiences and your plans and your agendas and your goals and your manipulations and all the fun things that we do as we try and kind of inch forward and, you know, make sense of the world and get things done. So it's about the, the nature of our intention and not the fault that we've created, but an awareness and maybe the willingness to question our intentions of all past, uh, you know, moments that we remember as kind of important enough to, to remember. But instead of remembering them in the sense of cause and effect, the question is, and what was your intention when that happened? Hmm. Hmm. The, the idea of, uh, karma being, um, you did something like you said, you know, you threw out this, this cup with a, an F you to the planet, you know, something with malice 
and um, that there's some thing bigger than you that's judging you and dishing out, you know, something uh, to you, at you, uh, because of it. Um, I've always seen that as being kind of like a, I don't know, uh, a bit on a Three Stooges episode or a Looney Tunes kind of thing. <laughs> I've never really considered that to be anything uh, real mm. or serious. I've always seen it as being, um, you know, Moko's running through the door, slams the door open, and because Curly is standing there with a ladder in his hand, he just so happens to swing around and <laughs> and hits uh, Larry in the head. You know, like it's just... And I think it's really funny that you chose that analogy because when you look at Eastern traditions and especially indigenous traditions, hmm. when you look at them from the modern sort of new age perspective, you know, um, for some reason thinking of all the kind of over the top religious uh, iconography or, you know, songs or music or, you know, golden white light coming up from someone's head and law, you know, it's like, oh, wow. Because <laughs> when we reach out to get a new, I don't know, blueprint to live our lives, we grip onto it pretty tight. And people in the West who've borrowed the idea of karma have turned it into basically a Judeo-Christian hammer, hmm. right? Because in, especially in indigenous traditions, but in early Eastern traditions, the point was that life is slapstick. It is the Three Stooges, hmm. you know, and, and no one's really running the show, except in this moment, your awareness of your intention, your awareness of the accumulation of kind of who you are and who you think you are and what grudges you carry because of all your previous intentions and how that's worked out, that's going to form and effect necessarily what you have to do with your intention next. Hmm. So it's more, uh, you, okay, let me sound this out to see if I got it right. I just went at last one time. Okay. Last it's going to force you in, to some degree uh, or determine to some degree what you're going to have to do with your intention next. Unless you're feeling particularly present and creative. Because I got to deal with all my past stuff as that guy who's got all that past stuff. Unless the light comes on and I go... <gasps> Maybe the problem is I keep being past stuff guy. Maybe I could try and be present stuff guy and be creative present stuff guy and see if I can start creating next present stuff guy's existence at least a tiny bit. And mm. that's again what Jordan Peterson's thing is if you're having a really hard time, just change one thing for five minutes a day. If you can do that, add five more minutes a day. You know you can do five, you can do another five. Mm -hmm. what, what I was going to... Um qualify i was going to try to qualify what you're saying just so that it can actually stick to the insides of my head here and hopefully for the listener as well it's this it, is going to be a tough one everybody you might have to listen, listen to this one twice yeah me too <laughs> <laughs> me too <laughs> um you're saying that karma is self-driven as opposed to um yes i'm saying that as opposed to something that is just um divine intervention slapping you on the wrist because you threw that paper cup out Absolutely. Right? That I, that I, in this present moment, have the awareness of what's going on around me based on the lens of experience that I have. And that lens is um, the pair of glasses that I installed 10 years ago that says, hey, man, I'm going to start recycling. I'm not going to do that anymore because, you know, trees matter whatever. I'm just trying to make something up here. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, we could go into a black and white 
you know, Three Stooges episode and decide whether whether or not we're going to walk through the door with a hat on or a vase in our hands or, I don't know, uh, be pushing a mule in backwards. You know, like whatever you want to do with the pie, slaps. Pie in the face. Pie in the face. Sorry, <laughs> I was just trying to, oh, mule's bum going through the door. That would be funny. But any, anyway, I'm just trying to say like, you know, when we when we lighten up a little bit and we when we become creative enough to associate a lot of different things, what happens next isn't uh, so grindingly a almost abusively uh abstract because mm -hmm. we we seem to keep defaulting to the god the odin the you know somewhat grumpy impatient father figure who wants to spank you mm. and if you believe in reincarnation it's going to spank you and echo like the little ripples in the pond through you know existences right you know i mean oh my god but if i come back as a frog you know whose fault was that or hey i finally won i came back as a frog i don't know if you like frogs but but then, you know, the point is, is that we just keep stretching it out, you know, more and more causally and more and more painfully to try and force ourselves to behave based on the external abstraction of don't screw it up or we'll spank you mm -hmm. for lifetimes. Yeah. But, but the, this, this new, new, <laughs> this, this idea of karma that you're saying here, isn't that, and I'm saying this out loud to hear myself think, so correct me if I'm wrong, which I know you will. Uh, it is. It is. It isn't that um, uh, you know. I did this, therefore that's going to happen. It's not that pendulum that swung all the way up this way, therefore it has to come all the way back down and smack me on the on the way past, going the other way. Um, it's the awareness of like, oh hey, look at that pendulum. Wow, look at the way it's swinging. Wow, if I was really smart, I could actually do something about that, or I could get out of the way, or I could just you know hit myself in the face with a <laughs> with a whipped cream pie or something. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it sounds like something totally, um, I mean, karma doesn't, you know, as much as you say that's, the, that's, that's what karma is, and if I'm understanding it right, I'm still over here going, no, 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 you got it wrong. Karma's the other way. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if you need a spanking, then you need a spanking. <laughs> you can't, well, and, and if I, you can't steer your life with autonomy, you're going to steer your life with reaction. Right. And I'm not, I'm not, sla I'm not spanking you, Anthony, in this. I'm just taking what you said as an opportunity to say, I, I get why we think we need this, but it's not helping. It's not helping. Yeah. This external punishment thing, it's just turning more people into phone addicted, uh, you know, alcoholics or, you know, Prozac addicts or whatever, because we're, we're just trying to numb ourselves out from the, the reality that you know, you're in, you have no choices anymore. All you get to do is chores and make up for mistakes and, or be the person with your boot on the throats of the people underneath of you because you're winning. Hmm. I mean, there's lots of ways to be an ethical entrepreneur too. So I'm not spanking everybody. I'm just trying to like say for the people who don't give a flying, uh, who jib, if I can say a word that no one's ever heard before, <laughs> um, you know, if we're going to if we're going to actually have any empathy for ourselves and each other, I think we need to slow down the impatience and, and the punishment and uh, all of that to just sort of start from now. Hmm. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's so hard to watch. Um, kind of almost an adolescent freak show um, of control addiction. So there's just two other things I want to bring up because um, we live in an age of very informed, very intelligent people who are all well-read, you know, to the most part. And people who are typically going to listen to a podcast like this, uh, with the title is, you know, arrogant as karma, <laughs> uh, or as humble as karma, depends on how you think about what we're talking about. Um, 
most people are going to come into this with some karma. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, in the sense of a a kind of loaded, perhaps previous intention of what this is all about. So I'm going to just sort of go into two other little spots just to be really, really clear from a scholarly point of view. So a a thing that's not very commonly expressed amongst indigenous traditions in the modern world, because honestly, you know, at a certain point, most indigenous people just realize it's better to stop telling non-indigenous people how you see the world because they just misunderstand it or appropriate it in some way or whatever. So when you go really far back in most indigenous cultures, when the population is really small, and this is actually still uh, in evidence uh, in the last couple of generations of very distant people, even in, uh, in very north, northern America. So imagine, and this is important to imagine this because it's uh, just a weird thing. Imagine that you've only met 30 or 40 people in your entire life. And everyone you've met in your entire life has probably met the same 30 or 40 people plus 10, plus 6, minus 5. Right? Maybe you're the person who happens to know more people than the other people. You're so cosmopolitan. You know, I've, I've met 42 people. <laughs> <laughs> and I can remember their names. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of a weird world to live in because there's only so many people who have ever existed. Hmm. So when someone's born, and again, this was happening in Northern Canada a generation ago, in the sense of how indigenous cultures see the world, uh, there's a sense of reincarnation, but it's not about karma the idea is there's only 40 or 50 people in the world so once you're born everyone's going to start interacting you with the person they hope you are and this gets pretty earthy in the sense of you know a 65 year old grandma you know in the igloo grabbing onto a a two-year-old going i think this is my friend you know so and so who uh we used to be married and we had such good times together and they're talking to this two-year-old as if hey can't wait till you're old enough to play and do all these fun things and you know really earthy cultures and i picked something weird off the top because it was funny but um maybe you know your nephew is eaten by a walrus and you're really really hoping someday that you know your nephew is going to come back into the world so some new person's born and you start talking to that person as if they're your nephew just in case that's the one they choose to be because there's only 42 people in the entire universe and so sorry just to be clear this is actually a um a true thing? This uh-huh. isn't just, this isn't some kind of nope. This is not a hippie thing at all. This is people living up in their hmm. in like for reals how people saw the world. So when you look at like uh, Eastern traditions that are all based in the indigenous cultures of Asia, um, although the populations are a lot bigger, the affirmation that there's only so many forms of consciousness you know, in the, in the universe, and it's it's framed from that kind of like you know Christmas present part of the the human mind, which is, I wonder which one this is going to be, right? Or I wonder what, you know, that new creature is is like, because consciousness, you know, is doing what it's doing and it's doing it through form and and through action and stuff like that, which has a big part of what karma means. Um, But, you know, the experience is very, very different when when you look at the world uh, and look at people in the world. And, you know, the idea is, well, this incarnation should be um, something we can predict or something we can expect, right? Because there's only so many things that can be incarnated into the world. So that's what reincarnation is about, is which one is coming into being as this one? Hmm. Instead of, oh, you, you have to keep coming back until you get it right. 
right? Although it can turn into that once your culture becomes uh, what we call accumulative instead of cyclic. Because once you get into heavy ag agriculture, your culture goes from, hey, we made it this year to, hey, we got this much left over this year. And right. once you start doing that, usually that's when cultures start counting years. Hmm. Right. Unless it's some, you know, religious I iconic death thing that like say b before Christ and after Christ for, for dating your, your culture, but that changes your culture because now everything is about how you did and how well you're going to do next or how badly you did and whose fault it was. So we could blame that perspective on life, on agriculture, hmm. right? Just in the sense of now life is determined by the vicissitudes of plant life and cows. And weather <laughs> and <laughs> glaciers and all kinds of stuff. So yeah. it's just to say that there's another way to understand reincarnation uh, that predates cause and effect as, as the, the ruler of life. Because once you're, 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 you're bound into year by year accumulation, storage and loss, well, you know, it's, life is all about cause and effect. And so uh, cause and effect sounds like karma. Well, it sounds like a way of experiencing karma when your mind has been hijacked by fault. Because huh. if something goes bad and you look at the last 10,000 years of agriculture for up until science kind of took over what was going on, it was the winds, it was the bad juju, it was the who stole the chicken, it was the all the different things that determined the crop yields or, you know, why, why uh, there's, you know, a blight amongst the pigs and, you know, now we can't have bacon or, you know, whatever. It, it's just to say, like, when you get into the fault reality, it, it's, it's a form of consciousness that's very new in the world. Mm. And it, it's obviously new in the world because it's bashing around like a drunken teenager. So last little bit of scholarly, I don't know, fun. Um, I have a couple of friends who, well, I have many friends who've been in India, but I have a couple of friends who uh, lived there in an ashram for about 15 years. And one of them has actually became a Sanskrit scholar. He actually taught Sanskrit in India. This guy from the UK. Wow. So just saying. This, this is not from a book. This is from my friend, Paul, who's, you know, lived and taught in India. Sanskrit, pretty cool. I'll try to do my best for what he said. <clears throat> and he has this amazing, deep, sonorous English voice that is just, could listen to it for days, but I don't think I'll pull that off. We're, st we're stuck with your voice today, Michael. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, You're see, there's the fault. I got a bad voice, right? No, that's your, that's your, I, you I the, I'm just playing, see? The Canadian voice. <clears throat> you just apologized for it. <laughs> <laughs> that's the karma of being Canadian. Damn, we're stuck. Sorry. Let's, let's get back to the podcast. Sorry. Anyway. So what Paul said was the actual way to pronounce karma is karma. And it's actually meant to be framed as a question. Because kama basically means uh, it's an invitation in that language to bring a person's awareness into pre-sequence and consequence. What just happened? How's that going? What you're going to do about it? Hmm. with your intention hmm. in this moment? Kama. It'd be kind of I almost you know, nowadays it'd be a really really deep way of saying something like uh, yeah, what do people say namaste or something you know it's like a almost like a greeting in the sense of so how's it going <laughs> but it's like how literally saying kama like you know of all the things that have happened that you know you you survived with your guile you know what's next with you and how is that for you because that's what it really means hmm. it's 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 more um 
brain's just trying to find out, uh, like, how's it going, eh? <laughs> <laughs> but for reals. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and but, um, you know, when you meet, uh, you meet somebody socially, uh, there's times when, um, I've had this experience when you ask somebody how they're doing and then they go off for 10 minutes and they tell you about their dog that's got cancer and their grandmother who's, you know, driving them crazy and they actually give you the real deal, right? As opposed to, well, great, how are you? You know, so that's what this sounds like. Mm -hmm. This is like the, um, the awkwardness of the reality of our lives is what's being asked. But imagine walking up to someone in that language, in that culture before, before agriculture, you know, you're both booting around the forest and you got a digging stick and you're watching out for the jaguars and you're pulling up roots and, you know, maybe your, you know, grandma just died and you're thinking about getting married and all these things are going on and it's, you know, dirt tribalism, simple, simple, simple. And someone says, come up. It's a very, very different question than, you know, oh, so you're running, you know, three companies and this is your second divorce and, you know, you just got pulled over for a DOI and you're probably not going to have a driver's license for a year and all these other things are going on. And uh, in, in the sense of precariousness and fault and consequence, I mean, hmm. you know, if you're a world builder, you're potentially a world destroyer. If you're a person digging a root, hoping to get through the next, you know, two weeks of drought, well... It's a slightly different conversation. Well, hugely different conversation. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that that's, I mean, hopefully not too long-winded of a way of just introducing people to this idea that, you know, karma is not from a traditional linguistic and cultural point of view, really about religion at all. Reincarnation has been hijacked by the mindset of agriculture, which is, well, who screwed that up? Don't want that to happen again. Fix it. You know, and all that stuff. So it's, it's a very, very it's a fundamentally different way of existing and when you're using say you know other psychology as as your tool or say qigong and yoga more somatic things as your your steering wheel uh you still have to check in mm -hmm. right you still have to do that self-quantification and when you're looking at kama i mean that's a really good way to do it with respect to just how your life is maybe not how you feel within your your you know skin and bones um specifically although that's going to affect it it's just to say oh yeah so that loosens some butterflies in my diaphragm when i stop feeling that the universe is ganged up against me because i was a bit of an irresponsible teenager or something you know it's like oh yeah everybody gets today come up hmm. you know what got you here and now what you're going to do does that matter you know because it's about your intention and intention is about meaning and meaning is about, I mean, if love is anything, it's the profound, overwhelming emotional response to meaning. How much someone means to you, how much sunsets mean to you, how much your girlfriend means to you, right? So uh, above your eyes, it's meaning. Below your eyes, it's emotion, which you'd call love. Mm. But it's only meaningful if it matters to you. It only matters if it actually is something that you can, you know, steer in your life, right? And that's what karma is all about. <clears throat> and you can, you know, use, use that in, in the sense of like for, for meditation and stuff, you know, okay, calm down, get out of the thought cloud and what's actually happening right now. And what is the next decision based on what really, really meaningful intention will matter for five minutes just to see what happens. The idea that you're, you're talking about, uh, Kama, um, 
almost sounds, uh, what's the right word? I mean, as, as profound as it is to the individual to consider that for oneself, um, it sounds like it's something that somebody doesn't even consider, that it's just the way it always is. Um, it's the way that it always is. It's, it's just trying to bring yourself back. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it sounds like it's, um, uh, it's not that Looney Tunes thing that, uh, that I was talking about karma before. It yeah. can be. Yeah. But I, I guess it's, how am I trying, trying to describe this? That it, it, it almost sounds like it's a, um, like the idea of if you look at a compass and I look at a compass and it says north and somebody points towards north it's like well north isn't really anything it's just over there <laughs> right the idea of kamaha isn't really anything it's just the way it always is as opposed to karma being this kind of um, you know if I hit this thing this way I better duck when it comes swinging around otherwise it's going to hit me in the back of the head right um, a call and response as opposed yeah. to you know do, do, do I get that right? Is that, is that I, I think that I'd say that Kama is this person standing with a compass deciding to see what happens when you take the step north. Huh. Right? Because you know you have to know what north is to make a decision. Okay. You don't have to commit to moving north until you fall off the flat earth if the earth is flat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> apparently we never know. It keeps going up. You know, so again, with the the idea, there's sort of basically two things. You're either going to live, um, perhaps in what we're calling a spiritual way, uh, relying on the ground of presence and the ground of meaning uh, and intention uh, and love and compassion and all those good things, or we're going to live in the ground of uh, escape pain, seek reward. Hmm. Right. right. Escape debt, you know, find wealth. Escape loneliness, um, you know, find the ownership of another person you can control to have your way with them. Or find actual love. Right. So there's, you know, I mean, I think if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, I hope you're aware that I polarize things on purpose and no, I'm not an asshole. I just have to try and make a point and I try to keep it under an hour, but that's not always working. <laughs> nope. Nope. So uh, there's a parable I'm going to share, uh, and I've actually borrowed this from an abbot, uh, a Buddhist abbot from a monastery in Sri Lanka, uh, where I spent 10 wonderful years in a cave. Just kidding. <laughs> Just thought I'd have some fun with my karma. <laughs> anyway. That's a really nice beard you've got. There. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes all the way down to the floor. <laughs> yeah, I keep tripping over it. It's kind of weird. Uh, Just for the sake of uh, folks out there in... in uh, not in Radio Land, in Podcast Land. What's an abbot? Is that a, like a fancy word for a monk? Uh, it would be the, kind of like the administrator coach monk who tries to keep everybody fed and the villagers from burning down the monastery and uh, reads the extra chapters to remind people to keep reading and, you know, has probably 15, 20 years of practice. So he has, you know, he or she would have lots to uh, reflect back to other monks in a monastery. Uh, but this is literally taken from um, something that was put up on the internet 20 years ago, almost, maybe more than that. It was one of the first things I ever downloaded off the internet. It was just totally random 
texting. You're that old? <laughs> What's that? I said, you're that old? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so it's based on uh, having some fun with the modern Buddhist perspective of karma. Uh, and also... Uh, having some fun with the fact that, you know, it was published on the internet. So people consuming that information, hopefully getting something out of it, would uh, be able to reflect on the deeper meaning of karma and karma around modern life. Okay. And for whatever reason, this Abbott monk guy chose a luxury liner in the 1920s, mostly based on the small amount of writing that I actually got to read, because he thought the costumes were more fun. Okay. I guess he's watched a few movies about Western people and thought the Titanic movie was cool or something. But anyway, um, so the sort of fundamental point of this parable, and it is a bit of a practice. So as we go through the practice and the parable, we're going to meet a bunch of people. And if you can, try and empathize as deeply as you can with these people. And I would encourage anyone uh, listening, unless you're driving a car or something like that, to every time we meet a new person, to change your posture, change your body language a little bit, try and embody what it would be like to be that person in that situation, uh, mentally, physically, and emotionally, around the things of intention and meaning. Right. Hmm. So... We're just going to assume that we're just sort of looking at a luxury liner and we're on the ocean somehow. Maybe there's a moon, little reflection in the water, just lovely <coughs> oceanscape. And as we move towards the luxury liner, it's important to recognize in the sort of Buddhist cultural context that the understanding is that all beings come into being with a certain amount of karma. Okay. Right. And that may or may, in, may not inform why they're in that um, state of being or in that position in the world. But the point is that all beings who have come into being in a certain state of being, um, with that conditioning are either going to be bound by those conditions and live them or live their life trying to break out of those conditions, which is basically what human life is. You know, if you're, you're born in a certain culture with a certain, uh, presumed set of conditions and limits and you buy into it, that's your life. And hopefully you're going to enjoy it and, you know, be fruitful and happy. Or you're born into a, a family and for whatever reason, you know, you have access to the internet and you think that your family's religious traditions or, uh, you know, weird cult behaviors in the basement just don't seem to fit with your life <laughs> and you decide to move on. And that means you're going to have to move out of those bound conditions and come up with some new ones. Mm. So that, that's, that's the really important part of the parable. So now we're moving closer to the luxury liner. You know, we're kind of, if there was helicopters in the 1920s, we'd be getting ready to land on it. And what we're going to do as we kind of land on the luxury liner is we're going to land on the luxury liner as a mobile kind of conscious awareness that's going to inhabit the different people that are living, you know, not like a possessing demon, but if you want to go there, go ahead. <laughs> Re repost the episode for Halloween. <laughs> How to possess strangers on a boat. So as we get into the, the people, just do your best to bring your awareness into their existence and wholeheartedly, you know, like an actor, play out what it would be like if you're at home, you know, doing your dishes, walk around like the person I'm talking about and, and get a sense of what, what the meaning and the richness of this is about. Hmm. Okay. So here we are, 1920s luxury liner, and we're sitting at the dinner table and we're at the top shelf dinner table where the captain sits and you're the captain. And you're wearing a uniform. So let's all get our uniform on. It, the 
any any well even even a twitch of facial expression will help if you're not that you know overt to move around differently sure. but now everything you do how you move how you pronounce words um who you speak to uh who you have to suck up to to keep the money coming in to pay for the fuel to keep your boat running all of that stuff is now your job <laughs> and it's the dinner table and there's you know the i don't know cotton baron you know with his you know 22 year old daughter who he's trying to foist off on you because you're the captain of the ship and soon you'll you know be made admiral and soon you'll you know have this big uh you know wealthy career and influence and he, he he's got an idea of how he can take advantage of that so you know the depth of meaning and interaction in your relationships with these people is basically you know you know you you have something that they can use Mm-hmm. You know, and then there's the, the person next to you doting over your, your new little badge or button or metal or, you know, fringe or, you know, shiny hat or whatever. And there you are as a fundamentally conscious, inherently whole human being playing a role. And you pretty, pretty much probably feel like, you know, a kid's toy, hmm. you know, a, a, a husk <clears throat> filling up this weird suit who walks around trying to seem all important and all knowing and all aware and then you have to have these really weird authoritarian conversations with the other people wearing the weird white suits in a non-military but pseudo-military organization that's driving the big luxury liner. So what's it like to be the captain of the ship? Uh, I mean, just pick, 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 pick some adjectives. First things that pop off your mind to describe what it would be like to be that guy. Uh, the word boring comes to mind. Boring, yeah. Lonely, pretense. Um, yeah, like putting on airs. Uh, full of crap. Um, and then how many ways could that go? Um, a narcissist would love the uniform. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, perhaps. <clears throat> I mean, the, the way you describe it, just, uh, I don't see that as being a, um, a very, uh, enviable position. But it's the most enviable position. From the outside. And that's the point. Hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the, the captain is... You know, maybe he's maybe maybe he's doing it because he needs the money. Yeah, it's not about that, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, it, it is about that in in one level, but it's it's about actually looking at the difference between how it looks and what it's like to exist in that, mm-hmm. right? Because that's the idea of from karma to kama. It's like, oh yeah, right. So you know, sure, you you're the captain of the ship because you maybe you you uh, were in the military in the past and you saved somebody's kid and now you're given this great job because you know you know how to follow orders. You know, or, or whatever, but it's just to notice what would that existence be like compared to what we think it would be like. Mm-hmm. So let's say the captain has to leave the dinner table because some alarm went off and he goes into the um, place where the people driving the boat, you know, are driving the boat. And there's this 25 year old kid who's, you know, nervous and has a high voice for some reason because it's funnier. And he's got his hands on the big funny spoked wheel you know, steering this, um, just pretend it's the Titanic or the Titanic's, Titanic's little brother or something. And there's this kid driving this, you know, 700-ton monster thing with a couple of thousand people living on it in the 1920s through the Atlantic. <laughs> and you have no idea how really all of this works. You just got picked for whatever reason. Probably, again, because somebody knows somebody who knew somebody who got you, you know, the job to steer the wheel from like 6 till midnight or something like that. And the captain comes in and there you're standing there holding onto the wheel and now you're the lieutenant and now you're steering this giant ship and, you know, you're 
the anus is puckered up into your elbow because, you know, everything's your fault. Although the captain's the one supposedly, you know, in control of the ship. You're this person clutching the wheel, just going, ah! (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, as soon as you walk below decks, you're the guy driving the ship. Hmm. Everybody knows you're the guy. One of the four or five guys or girls who actual 1920s would be guys, but I'm trying to, you know, elevate it a bit here. (laughs) Anyway... You know, you know, you walk around and everyone has it's just sort of got that natural kind of deference, you know. You're not an alpha male in the tribal or the primal sense, but you don't want this guy to be, you know, ignored. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, you want to make sure he's well fed, he's not drinking too much, he's getting enough sleep, maybe he's hooking up with the maid or whatever, because you know, one of this one happy guy, not suicidal guy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I this is a horrible thing, but I'm just a aware that there's people who do not have sex who get pissed off and drive buses into people now. So I'm having that in my head for this poor guy who's driving the the boat, right? Because mm-hmm. that's Kama. Like, that's what it's like for some people to be here. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's rational or sane. I'm just saying there's a lot of things you want to make sure this guy driving the boat uh, feels good about himself because he's the only one or his, you know, compatriots that are going to keep you from the proverbial iceberg. Yeah. From his perspective, he has no idea what the heck's going to go on. He's just got this big, weird, spoky wheel, you know, and this other thing, he pulls back and forth and, you know, probably can't even drive a motorcycle in the sense of, you know, how we think about operating vehicles, but that's his job. He's scared out of his mind and arrogant as hell below decks because he's getting away with stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, how many people are living that life in some way right now? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Because, uh, I mean, if you're listening, grab the wheel, look out the window. There's all this stuff underneath you, behind you, call it economy, call it family, call it momentum, call it culture. And all you got is left or right. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> this very large wheel that, and a very big thing that doesn't and it's not, turn easily. And, and the funny thing is that you're one of the few people in the world that when you steer, it's everybody for whatever reason. And that you don't, people don't even think it's you. They think it's the captain. Hmm. Right. And that, that covers like probably 70% of industry, what it's like to go to work every day, grab onto this abstract thing, give all the credit to somebody else at the, in the penthouse or whatever, and try not to crash the thing. And no one knows how it works or else it would work. I'm thinking of, uh, the Simpsons, (laughs) you know, Monty Burns at the top of the pile. There you go. And Homer and the rest of those schleps, you know, down there throwing little rods of plutonium back and forth at each other. And I remember it's something that, uh, this is actually a Jordan Peterson quote too. He brought up Homer Simpson and he said, yeah, there's this episode of The Simpsons where Homer's drinking a, a jar of mayonnaise and a bottle of vodka. <laughs> and his Marge or somebody in the show says, I don't think that's a good idea. And he says, that's a problem for future Homer. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see that's a person completely unaware of karma. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there, there's the, the the little lieutenant, you know, he's he's got to try and keep his hands on the wheel. Mm-hmm. So let's go below deck and uh, let's meet the guy shoveling coal into the giant maw of the coal-fired engine that's driving this behemoth across the ocean. So take a moment, feel your big muscles, feel your sweaty coal skin. I mean, I'm sure a lot of the ladies on line are going, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, a nice, that's a nice pectoral. There might be a lot of guys out there thinking the same thing too. Michael. Oh, they're probably thinking, how can I get that nice pectoral? <laughs> Unless they like the, anyway. That, that was my point. Yeah, yeah, I'm just bringing it up. So I'm just trying to help people with the imagery and the playfulness of this. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you could tell this in a really morose, you know, 
cause and effect why like the poor guy who got stuck digging the coals and mm-hmm. you could look at it that way but i'm because of the way i i guess integrate into the world of helping people with their their health start with now start with feeling start with presence start with somatic start with the state start with something that's real so what's it like to sit there and shovel giant shovelfuls of coal into an endlessly tanning you and burning you maw and if you're having a really good day someone's going to give you a couple of extra shots of bourbon because for some reason people want it to go faster or they want more heat in the thing because it's cold out or whatever Mm. you're you're basically your job is to just suck it up eat enough to shovel enough coal and if you're lucky someone will give you a drink and the likelihood of you hooking up with one of the maids in the sense of sexual access for anybody on the boat uh, is a lot less than even the lieutenant just because he's got a clean uniform and he's got some serious responsibilities and his happiness is important. You just need to shovel. He probably smells better too. Yeah, that's what I mean, right? But he doesn't look as good, you know, <laughs> in front of a... Without a shirt on. <laughs> in front of the big fire. So anyway, so what's the comma of the guy down there? His entire life is just shovel. Maybe, you know, after a few tours on, on going back and forth, say, across the Atlantic, he might save up enough money to, like, maybe, I don't know, in the parlance of the modern world, get a food cart in New York or something. But, you know, it's it's that, that, that life and that mindset is basically you're always going to be in the bottom of the ship mm-hmm. and you're always going to be taking care of other people's stuff and you're always going to barely get through the day. And if you're lucky, someone's going to buy you a drink. I have a uh, family like that. Most people have family like that. You know, lunch bucket under the arm. Yep. Uh, lunch bucket under the arm, head down off to work in the factory eight hours a day and, uh, you know, eat, sleep, rinse, repeat, um, just because, you know, and that's, they, they, they have this, jeez, uh, oh, I mean, I, I had that program installed in me for I don't know how long and I, you know, um, managed to deprogram myself around that whole idea of being a slave to a job just because having a job was important mm-hmm. and I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I totally... And, and, and that, that's an amazing ethic in the sense that when you look at those first three people we've talked about, hmm. the guy shoveling coal is the only one who knows what his job is and how to do it and how to not screw it up and is only responsible for that one thing. Like mm-hmm. No one's going to blame him if somebody crashes the ship. Right. Nobody, nobody's going to blame him if there's a mutiny unless he's the one running the mutiny. As far as he's concerned... He's got that ethic and that ethic built the Western world, mm-hmm. right? So it's not a bad ethic. It's, it's, it's a highly ignored and undervalued ethic. It's a part of us that in the modern entrepreneur world, we tend to have a certain negative relationship with. Mm. Oh man, I'm thinking about this as like a work a day, you know, what do, what do we call it now? Wage slavery. Yeah. You know, people are all, oh man, you're just a wage slave. I'm a clinician. I'm also an entrepreneur, but... Most of my clinician friends are very happy to have a clinician job. Clinicians don't often make a hell of a lot of money compared to what we think that they do, but it, they usually can pay their bills and, you know, have comfortable lives and are usually smart enough to, you know, find balance. Yeah. Then you look at the more entrepreneur people, when they think of clinicians, they think they're wage slaves. Yeah, people who just trade time for money, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember hearing that term decades ago yeah. with regards to... Uh, what was it, Amway or Nikan or some network marketing thing? You're just trading time for money. You can leverage your ability to get on top of this pyramid and, yep. you know. Trick a bunch of other people to do the work for you. Well, something. Something. Well, I mean, it, it's it's just an interesting thing in, in this sense of karma. Karma. Captain. 
the least happy person on the ship. Mm. The lieutenant, probably the most stressed person on the ship, but totally kind of in the excitement of the fact that everything that's going on actually really, really matters, but it's terrifying. Guy at the, you know, digging the coal, um, he's just in, in it. I mean, him and his friends, you know, high fives or fist bumps or whatever people did in the 1920s to say, good day, good job. And it's really simple. And there's really, there's in that kind of existence, when you come into being in that way, I mean, it's, it's almost meant to parable the animal existence mm -hmm. in the sense of, you know, it is actually pretty amazing to just have a very simple daily routine and to move through it and to have friends and family and to have someone buy a drink once in a while and just say, wow, we made it. And that's what's, and that's the, that's what really matters to that incarnation. I had the experience of, uh, when I was a kid, uh, I, I, my dad built us a new house and, uh, I had the misfortune and fortune of being the, um, one of the guys working with the bricklayers and because I was the young kid and because I didn't know how to lay bricks, I was the guy who was, Anthony, go get it, the mortar, mortar. You know, they were screaming at me yep. in their funny accents. Italian and... Uh, you do it really well. Hungarian. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you know what? The, the first couple of days of doing that job, and it didn't last that long. It was like, you know, maybe a week and a half or whatever it was. Um, the first couple of days of doing that job, I absolutely hated it. And then, you know, on day three, when I actually sat down with these guys, because I was so exhausted and I couldn't do anything else, uh, you know, for their lunch break, they were hilarious. They were the most rude, unprofessional... <laughs> Um, constantly taking the piss out of each other kind of guys. They were just having so much fun and they didn't give one, you know, crap about the work they were doing. They, they, they did what they did and they did it well. When they were doing it, they were totally focused on that. And then when they, when they weren't, you know, when it came time for lunchtime, you know, as soon as the lunch bucket opened, you know, off went the job responsibility and up came the, hey, you got any wine in there? You got any cheese? <laughs> What'd your wife make me for lunch today? You know, like yeah. that kind of stuff. And I mean, I spent, I don't know how many years of my life in the industry and doing drywall and all the other weird things that younger people do. And, um, you know, and in the sense of, you know, we all start off with some pretty mm -hmm. easy to get jobs. And if you happen to really be good at them, you can make a career out of them. And, uh, those people are, in my opinion, the most honest, the most fun, the most real, <laughs> the most, uh, in the moment because their aspirations are, Hey, you know, we had a good Christmas last year and no one died, mm. you know, and they make fun of the highfalutin people with the fancy hats, you know, trying to build, you know, a 50 story building when we've only built 40 stories up until now or whatever. So it's a very different incarnation, a very different, uh, sense of expectation and, and what life is. So it's interesting that, you know, in this whole story parable that you have about being on the ship, you know, the guy shoveling coal is somebody that I actually resonate with because I have, I, you know, that guy actually... That guy built the, this entire civilization. Well, that guy put food on my table when I was a kid. It was my dad, right? Yeah. I mean, he was one of those guys that worked at a factory, lunch, you know, a lunch bucket under the arm, head down, like I said. Um, and there's a... Um, of the three people in this parable, he's the one that I resonate with because of familiarity but he's also the one that I resonate with because of the simplicity of uh, the person's being. Mm -hmm. To be the kind of guy that just needs to, you know, get up, 
you know, put on a pair of shorts. Don't need a shirt for where I'm going. I'm going to go shovel coal into a hole. Um, there's just something kind of uh, uncomplicated about all that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to come into being as somebody else. Okay. Uh, we're going to come into being as the scullery maid. Okay. And she's usually on the lower decks, cleaning up the vomit that's coming off the railings from the upper decks. Charming. Just thought I'd start off with something, I don't know, symbolic. And, you know, she may or may not be the one who ends up hooking up with the lieutenant who drives the ship uh, because the captain's probably out of reach because the rich men are trying to marry him off to the rich daughters. But maybe if she could hook up with this lieutenant, she'd finally be free enough to maybe start a farm in the family somewhere in Idaho or Ohio or those places you hear about when you're, you know, listening to the people talk who actually are going somewhere. Somewhere out west. Well, somewhere else. Yeah. Right? And, you know, uh, she's probably being abused by uh, other, you know, people in the pseudo-military organization. You know, women above her treat her badly, you know, because women compete in the way that they do. Men above her are probably treating her badly in the way that men above women, you know, typically would as well. You know, so her whole life is, you know, how bad is today going to be? How out of control is my day going to be based on the, uh, the strange reality that there's so many other people above me in some weird way that they get to control me? Do I get fed or not? Do I get molested or not? Do I actually get raped or not? Do I have any freedom to move forward in my life and actually make choices that are actually mine for more than 15 minutes? Mm. Right. And I'm not trying to make this a man woman thing. I didn't really plan it that way. And I didn't, this is, this guy from Sri Lanka, but, um, that's a really, really different thing. So again, if you're listening, you know, I'm not suggesting you get down on your hands and knees and start scrubbing your floor to act this out, but I think you'd feel it a lot more if you did. And then thought of all of the people in your life who had power over you and the weird, dark kind of myopia that people experience in that existence. Where you just, you know, it's like tunnel vision. I just want to get from here to the end of this hallway. I want to get from here to the end of this day. I want to get out of this situation with these people who are, you know, abusing me in some way. Right? Because there's a lot of people who end up, you know, at the tail end of industry, at the tail end of fair play, at the tail end of, you know, actual ethical human behavior. And that's a pretty big thing in the world because nowadays that's the third world. Mm -hmm. Right. They're, they're the ones who are, you know, making all the cell phones or they're the ones doing all these other things. And, um, they aren't given, you know, free range of the ship. They're, they're, they're given, you know, a, a 16 hour day and a, and a lot of really, really unkind people making their life less theirs. Hmm. Right. So this is again about taking a moment and we might call this applied compassion. Like, can you actually have compassion to suffer with the captain and that existence and that false power? Can we have compassion to suffer with the lieutenant, you know, with this massively abstract sets of responsibilities and the fact that one bad screw up and 2000 people drown, you know, or whatever, you know, and that's a pretty weird place to be. You know, and can we have compassion and suffer with, you know, the people shoveling the coal into the maw of the modern world? 
You know, do, do, do we, we stand on their shoulders defecating into their faces or do we climb down and find a more uh, ethical and empathic way to kind of build a better engine for all of us to, to move ahead uh, as an industrialist society? You know, can we suffer with the people on their hands and knees, bent and sometimes broken and abused, because we're so impatient that we actually can, you know, in our arrogance and, and meanness and impatience, walk past someone who we can feel ter perfectly entitled to be unkind to, or actually even criminally violent to, without any concern of, of you know, recourse, right? And I could go on. I mean, I've done this where I've picked completely different characters. There's a whole menu of possibilities. But the next one is the one that's actually the one that begins the real parable. So imagine you're coming into being and you're coming into being on this luxury liner. And it doesn't really matter in the sense of how you're coming into being. But let's pick uh, you're the debutante. Uh, you're 17 years old <clears throat> and in the modern world that makes you 25 in the sense of when you're going to get married and start having kids. Uh, because you're a debutante, it means you're being elevated into the active role of participating in the artifice of society. So now you're going to go to balls, you're going to go to teas and, you know, crumpets, you're going to do all the things and you're going to wear out the dresses and you're going to tie up all the corsets so that you can fit into all of the opportunities that are there for you because it turns out you're the most profoundly important resource on the ship. Now, how's that? Because you're a young, attractive, beautiful woman with opportunity. Hmm. Right. Because human culture, as it turns out, is completely determined by the choices made, if women are still free in, in whatever culture we're imagining, to make choices. I mean, this is, this is a, an indigenous cultural ethic. You know, the culture is led by the decisions of adolescent women. Because mm -hmm. all men want access to whatever adolescent women want, because that's where adolescent women become grown-up women. And if you can go in that direction, you're going to meet one of those grown-up women someday. So that's that's what's running the world, mm. right? And I'm not saying that to try and make some political point or some social point. I'm asking us to have compassion for what it's like to have all of this really weird power and no one offering you any real sense of responsibility on how to use it. And that's a really, that's a really big hell. It's like the captain hell. It's like the lieutenant hell, right? In the sense of there's some serious consequences to your choices, not only to you, but to a lot of other people. You marry the wrong guy and he's a sociopath and he gets really confident and kills a thousand people or something. Oops. Right. So it's just to say, you know, what we're trying to dig into here to the listener and to you, Anthony, is can we have compassion for all the weird ways we fit into the world? And, and really just slow down enough to go, wow, that's pretty icky. No wonder high school goes badly for a lot of young women, you know, in the sense of how women can compete in that way, right? Because this is about comma, and it's also about karma. What are, we do to each other, what we do to the world, and how much we ignore how it works. Are you suggesting that the idea of comma or karma is... Um, I don't want to sound flippant here, but like a supplement that we need to take every day. I mean, is, is this is this a kind of perspective or a lens that uh, you would invite people to, uh, you know, introduce into their uh, their lives and their diets? Uh, I'm not sure how to fit this into your diet. Well, I'm I'm I'm, I'm trying I, to I paraphrase, but I, I'm, I'm just 
playing with that. Um, kama is a practice. Kama is a kind of inquiry that happens between mentors and mentees, if mentees is a word, mm-hmm. right? So it's an invitation. Oh, you're interested in actually being conscious of the consequences and the pre-sequences of this existence uh, you're having right now or of the existence of the person we're talking about right now? Like you're, you're actually willing to like go into their experience empathically to feel it out, to take responsibility for your part in their suffering, to relieve their suffering if you're a part of it. I'm not talking about communism, I'm talking about grown-ups, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? So here we are, we're the debutante. We're on the, the second deck for fun. <clears throat> we're walking around in the moonlight and we're aware that at 17, it's either going to be the captain, the lieutenant, the the guy digging, you know, the coal, or or you're going to be the scullery maid, right? Mm-hmm because, you know, your life is going to be about power and its abuse or your attempt to escape it, right? Or your oppression from it because right. you're a young, beautiful woman and you have opportunity. Hmm. So there you are standing at the deck, at the railing, and you realize because for whatever reason you met someone below decks from another part of the world who had access to wisdom teachings, spiritual teachings, and some spiritual practice. And they've brought it to your attention that there's this thing you can do when you decide to become really, really present and calm that may fundamentally change the way you make decisions and the way you feel your life. Call it meditation or something like that. But the risk is uh, and the only way this is going to work is, is you're going to have to leave all of the conditioning you have behind to find out who you are without it. So effectively you have to jump off the ship. Hmm. Right. So let's come into being as anyone you imagine or yourself, the way you imagine yourself in the moments when you feel like you need to dive or hold deeply into your spiritual self practice belief. Imagine yourself standing at the deck against the railing of the ship. And you're at the choice point of, if I stay on this ship, the insanity, the conditioning, the suffering, the comma, the karma is going to just eat my life away. And I will never discover anything else than another corner of this bleeping ship. So you jump. Mm-hmm. And you swim away from the ship. And most people who do this, swim away from the ship and then they swim back and become cult leaders. Hey man, there's this entirely different thing going on. It's just over the railing and I don't talk to you guys about over the railing. The railing is cool. The ocean's amazing. I feel like doing a Donald Trump, I don't know, imitation for some reason. It's incredible. (laughs) But the railing, it's huge. I I can't do his voice. I I should try more. But anyway, the railing is huge. It's the biggest. It's the best. We're going to turn into a wall. (laughs) Anyway, Canadians imitating Donald Trump today Sorry. on Fusion House Radio. <laughs> the clip will be on YouTube, I'm sure. So that's that's step one of a spiritual life. And it's again meant to be, can we have compassion for those poor people who get a taste of autonomy and freedom, who come back and try and make a living telling people about how important it is and what it's like and follow me. Because they, they gave it a try. They turned it into a business and maybe they're kind of creepy sometimes, but... You know, it's it's based on the ethos that, you know, there's something else going on. Mm-hmm. At least they jumped, or at least they thought of jumping or read a cartoon about jumping, but anyway. <laughs> so here we are. That didn't work. 
coming into being as a being on the luxury liner, as all beings in the universe have to for some reason. And uh, you're aware because you've had some spiritual teachings and some practice that this is a fundamentally insane asylum on the water. And you jump and you swim away and you keep swimming and you keep swimming and you keep looking back at the boat and then you keep looking at the ocean and look at back at the boat and you're like, you know what? I'm going to swim as far away from the boat, but as long as I can see the boat. I'm a guy who went, I swam away from the boat. Woo, I'm a boat swimmer or whatever. You know, I'm free, I'm free. But as long as I can see the boat, I know why I'm free. Because I'm not the boat. Hmm. And this is all the revolutionary new age kind of like, we're not that, we're not this, we're not that. And they just keep pointing at the thing that they're not. <clears throat> Almost uh, in a way that they would be uh, perhaps mocking it or uh, belittling it. Well, or their, their arrogance and superior yeah. superiority are determined by the fact that they're still identifying with the thing that they, they no longer think is a value. So the only value they have is to have a sense of arrogance of at a, at value addedness because your opinion is the boat's a bad place to be. But over here, being a not boat person, being a swimmer person, we're all the best. So you're the smug bastard swimming away from the boat. That or I'm the Nihila, Nihila, Nihila spiritual person who has given up on all meaning because I left meaning that was for sale for me behind because I didn't buy into it. Mm. And now I'm in the, the ocean of meaningless this where it's all just abstract and unkind and whatever and you know that that that's there's a huge part of you know the darker sort of art art in our culture and music in our culture that comes from there so one more time we're on the boat <clears throat> that didn't work <laughs> reincarnation's great <laughs> let's try again and we've had access to wisdom teaching spiritual teachings we're at the railing we decide to jump off the ship we realize that it's now like kamikaze time the only choice having lived all these other incarnations, right? Because that's kind of the way to play this out, is to swim away from the boat no matter what. And it's terrifying because you're going into the, the void, the darkness, the unknown. And there is no way to know the known or have a even a pseudo sense of the unknown. You're just going to keep going and eventually you look back and you cannot see or find the ship. And that's going to be the dark night of your soul. Because now you've gone and done it, man. You've left the entire thing behind and there's no way back. You're lost. You're probably going to drown. I mean, holy crap. But what was I thinking? Hmm. But well, now I'm adrift in the sea of the, the Tao or, you know, you know, the, the heaven or the universe or the sky or something. And I'm just swimming. That's all I got. Swim, swim, swim. And, um, because this is a parable about spiritual life and practice and, you know, it's a bigger meaning, let's say that as you're swimming and you keep going, eventually you've just given up on the whole idea that you're a boat person or a swim away from boat person, or you're a swimming person at all. You're just in the flow. Okay. Well, that's all there is. Ocean and swimming, ocean and swimming. And, um, eventually let's say you see an island, you know, cause clearly at some point, uh, practice, you know, if it's meditation or whatever, is going to de develop into a, another awareness of, of being. So there's this island, and you're swimming towards the island, but you want to maybe swim around it a little bit, because, you know, once bitten, twice shy about places that aren't swimming places, because you never know, this could be one of those boat swimmers who built the island wants to tell you how important it is to be an island guy. You, know? you never know. <laughs> you got to be careful. That's where they built the boat. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, there you go, right? Oh my God. It's, a, it's one of those fractal nightmares. You just keep doing it over and over again. Anyway, 
So let's say you're swimming around the island and you can see in one part there's a really big swamp and it stinks and it's cloudy and it's weird. But you can see there's people kind of in it, but at the same time it just, it looks like something out of a really gross, swampy, blah, movie. So you decide, oh, I'll just keep swimming around the island. You just <laughs> give me a moment. to <laughs> not done with my swim. <laughs> and you swim around and there's this beach. And on the beach party on the other side of the island, there's people, they're beautiful, they're bronze, naked, dancing, there's people making out on the beach, there's luau's, there's vegetarian luau's if you're vegetarian, there's everything you ever wanted, right? It's paradise, it's nirvana, right? It's, it's all the places. If you're a Viking, you can go and kick the crap out of those people, you know, it's, it's got everything. <laughs> it's the ultimate, you know, post-conditioned existence, you know, amusement park. Because there is a certain amount of benefit and bliss and, and freedom and um, expansion of awareness when you actually celebrate a little bit. Hmm. All right. Okay, I get it. I'm not going to be a boat person. I'm not going to be conditioned. I get that swimming is an important part of staying awake, you know, being in the now, being connected to what's really going on. But at some point, hopefully each of us is going to get to a place in our lives, but a true place, not a plastic amusement park place, but a true place of profound celebration of existence with each other, without conditions or without conditioning, you know, or with, without a lot of unnecessary stuff. So let's say there you are, you're at the beach. It could be eternity. You could be there forever man, woman, Viking, <laughs> you, you could be the guy stirring the luau, you could buy, you could be the person chomping in the luau. I'm just picturing a beach filled with a whole bunch of men and women and Vikings. <laughs> well, there's the Viking corner, then there's the, you know, luau corner. No, 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 everybody's all together. <laughs> okay, duck. <laughs> it's one big happy family. Yeah. So at a certain point, though, the bliss and the ecstasy is going to be cloying. It's going to start to taste less like dessert and more like sawdust. Hmm. So inevitably what people are going to do is go for a little wander on the island and see what's up. Or you get back in the water and swim and see if there's another island. Or if you're particularly brave, you head around the other side of the island to that swamp. But you know, that swamp's even worse than the boat seems to me. So you decide to go for a walk and you decide to start climbing this mountain. Because you notice every once in a while people just head off up this trail towards this mountain. And it's, it's a pretty steep trail. And if you keep going up this mountain, it's not even a trail anymore. Now you're doing almost technical climbing and there's skeletons like on the path, like people have fallen off this thing. But, and again, with this kind of a practice, really picture yourself. I mean, now you're, you're, you're hand over elbow clawing your way up the side of this scree slope. And now you're actually like, oh my God, I wish I had ropes and all those fancy things you see that people on TV use when you're actually technically rock climbing, but it's a spiritual journey. So nope, <laughs> <laughs> no safety net for you. And, and you're, you're climbing. And eventually if, if you're uh, consistent and dedicated and insane enough, you will get to the top of your mountain. And you can stand on the top of that mountain and you can reach as high as you can reach on your tippy, tippy toes and touch whatever it is that's coming down from the sky. Hmm. For reals. Whatever that is, if it's a that at all. And now you're one of the people coming down the trail. Luckily, not one of the skeletons falling down the side of the mountain who didn't quite make it with a completely different truth. And the truth that, in my experience, no one I have ever met who's been there can speak of, myself included. Hmm. If there is no language that can talk about what happens when you break through that particular boundary. And again, this is about comma and boundaries and breaking through. 
So now you're stunned awake and stunned for real. You've met the, you know, the, the, the big kahuna, if we can stay with the island theme. <laughs> uh, if, if it turns out to mean that to you, you know, in the sense of, you know, a god or gods or, you know, some howling silence of Tao, as the Taoists say it. Um, what's your choice going to be? You know, reset back to the guy digging coal, go back to swimming and start an occult, go back to the beach and choosing Vikings and Luau's, or what about that swamp? Well, now, now you've been everywhere you've been, you're probably going to be able to put up with anything and probably respond to it in what we would call uh, right relationship or right action. You know, you've kind of cleaned off the jerk part of yourself somehow after all that swimming and you know, celebrating the, you know, the big party of existence and meeting the, the numinousness of, of, of the big picture of it all. So you decide. I'm cracking my fingers here, but I can't. Let's find out what that swamp's all about. So you go down to the swamp and um, it's terribly, terribly, terribly ugly, whatever that means to you. And the smell is unbelievably, you know, like it, it, you're just retching just to even like stand there. And you notice that when you look out into the swamp, you see a few people about, you know, ass deep in the swamp and they're waving and they're digging and they're moving around. And it looks like they're rescuing people who got lost in the ocean. Hmm. So you decide, you know what? I think that seems like a pretty good idea. If I get tired of this, I can go back to the beach. If I wanted to, I could go and, you know, sit on top of the mountain with, you know, my peeps up there. And now that I get the bigger picture of all this stuff, I can, you know, re re reassert that uh, realization and reality if I want. I'm sure, pretty sure I'm never swimming back to the boat, though. No, that's never going to happen. <laughs> and, you know, that party might be nice to visit once in a while, but it just feels a little bit, I don't know, less rich and meaningful than it does to walk into this swamp ass deep, plant myself in the smelliest, weirdest, probably most, you know, bleh, just what's, what's going to happen below the surface. I mean, eh. but you keep waving at the people who are swimming, like maybe a bit lost. You don't know. No, keep coming. Don't go back to the boat. You don't, you don't want to do that. It's not going to help. <laughs> There's a beach over here. Check it out. Vikings, man. <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> Luau's too. You know, or if you want to come here and be a bodhisattva and commit all your future existences, not necessarily in the hard reincarnation model, but at least the next couple hours or years or whatever, commit the next series of your existences or all of the future existences you have to be the compassionate one who wants to bring all sentient beings to some freedom from suffering. It was written by a Buddhist guy. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of their, their theme, right? Yeah. So that's a parable about what it is to become a bodhisattva. A person who said, you know what? I understand karma and I understand karma. And I understand conditioning and suffering. And I have explored compassion deeply. And I am not separate from anyone or anything. And I take responsibility for all of this. Forever. I would imagine that having that um, that sense, that understanding, um, what's, the, what's the concept? <laughs> I just love what happens when you actually leave people there because it's just like, oh, well, right. Well, I was just going to say that I, I would think that th that would mean um, 
that would live longer than I would uh, of existence or of, of, of ways of being than it is of um, behaviors or, um, you know, rules for life. Yeah. Yeah. And they, this, this, this is the, the hardest part to, to sort of bring up because there isn't, this is not meant to be an answer. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be an adjustment to what we value as real, what we value as important, what we value as, um, I don't know, universal. And I mean, that, that's sort of the, the point of the parable because we all have an ego. You're never not going to have one. Mm-hmm. It's going to teach you a lot or else it's going to believe it's actually in charge. You know, and that's going to teach you a lot too. <laughs> uh, but at some point, it's more about what we do with the opportunity of living than well, how we would describe on a resume how well it's going. Right. And that's the distinction between being on the boat and off the boat. Because on the boat, you need a resume because you got to fit into the boat. And you better remember your resume and do a good job. Mm-hmm. Right. When you move away from conditioned existence and start swimming, now you have the, the opportunity to at least relate to the universe with that distinction. You know, you could question your conditioning, you know, and that's what starts a lot of cults is, hey, maybe your parents were wrong. Mm. You know, or maybe they're bad. Give me your money. <laughs> or give me their money. Right. But then you, you move a little farther and then it's like, yeah, you know, there is a certain amount of work that it takes that isn't about anything else than just staying committed to practice, whatever it is, you know, and eventually it will pay off and there will be the gratitude and the celebration of, oh, I finally am free of, say, that addiction or that uh, dysfunctional marriage. Or I finally got a different job that's, that's better for me. I mean, this may be small stuff in the bigger picture, but celebrating the wins and the freedom in, in a really deep, profound, changing way is why people go out of their way to do anything. Mm-hmm. Right? But each one of these things is boundary dissolving and e- ego dissolving because, you know, you're not going to have a true deep celebration of your freedom if it's there to build up your resume, right? That's not what you're doing. You're building up your resume. And then there's the people who climb the mountain, you know, who go into mon- monastic life for a while, or they literally climb a mountain and go to the Himalayas, or they take ayahuasca a bunch of times to, you know, revamp what, you know, real really means, you know. And when we have those apex experiences, they profoundly change us. That's why people go so far out of the way to climb dangerous mountains to have them. Mm-hmm. And that brings us down to the swamp, you know, where, okay, you know, if I've been through all of these incarnations, you know, and we can think about it over, you know, 10,000 years or, you know, an hour and a half conversation, sorry. Um, then that's what it becomes about is realizing that you're always flipping from one boundary kind of state to another. And if you can begin leaning and shifting and steering towards patience and compassion and connection, you know, and service, even for just five minutes a day, (laughs) then the whole dance of, of, you know, what's wrong with you and what you should do about it changes into what you should just do about all of it. Mm -hmm. Right. Just, just to feel the difference. Right. Cause that's, that's why we, you know, are talking about this thing, you know, this little series from, you know, Jordan Peterson's thing on 12 Rules for Life and how to be just an actual conscious person about how we behave, you know, to moving into this idea of self-quantification around practices like Qigong we talked about last week and uh, <clears throat> what it's like to become more aware of just how we fit ourselves into the world. And, you know, here we are talking about the actual de- deconstruction of karma, deconstruction of ego and enough that we realize there's kind of almost like a 
an ine inevitable kind of sequence that people go through as they become more mature. I mean, that we could say as a spiritual person or uh, a less conditioned person. And that's something that all of us want, but we just keep ex assuming that um, it's abstract, it's obtuse, it's not um, common sense. It's going to, I have to go to a monastery or, you know, shave my head or grow my hair or get dreads or wear a robe. I don't know, but it's going to be weird. Instead of going, oh yeah, right. It's less about the resume. It's not just about celebrating the fact that, you know, existence is pretty cool. And it's not just about making sure you can touch in with whatever it is the universe is doing. You know, although it's nice to be able to affirm, I don't know, some sense of, I don't know, collaboration with that. You know, I'm on the team of good. Good job. Mm -hmm. You know, and then if you're on the team of good and it's not about you anymore, it's going to be about the people who can't seem to get there on their own. Mm -hmm. So you're going to head back to the swamp and start picking people up. Right? Because that's, I mean, I, I love this guy's parable because it covers it all. It just says this is to live... To understand karma, look at this parable. To understand kama, live the parable. Hmm. I think it's, um, I mean, the, the whole time as you've been describing this, um, you know, my usual position sitting at this end of the microphone is one where I'm um, listening for the, the person at the other end of the speaker. Right, I'm listening for the podcast listeners out there, um, trying to question you based on what I think uh, they may be questioning, and I'm stuck here, just like it, it's a parable. It's not an opinion. It's hard. It's really hard to have discourse about this kind of a thing, and I, I get that. Yeah, and and, and, and I, um, as much as it's hard to actually ask questions or to, um you know, get you to explain more about what this is. Um, for me, it seems to make sense. Yeah, and that that's why I was trying to present it that way because it's, it's not a like a bunch of political opinions or mm -hmm. medical opinions or some new protocol. It's like there's this crazy abbot in Sri Lanka who came up with this really great parable to help modern people break through the difference between the cause and effect relationship with being you and trying to improve your existence and the fundamental felt sense of actually being in the process of improving your existence. Um, it, it, this happens all the time whenever we talk, and I get, I get these flashes of stories or ideas, and I don't really know if they relate. I'm going to try this one on for size just because... Oh, we're over time now, so we're just free to go on for 10 hours. <laughs> <laughs> or another five minutes. <laughs> um, being in the car, driving the car, and having someone cut me off... And um, my girlfriend is like, oh, my God, you see what that jerk did? Honk your horn at them, flipping the bird, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just sort of sitting there in my mind thinking, you know, what if the guy's a fireman? You know, or if he's a doctor. Or if he's got to go pee. <laughs> uh, or if he's got someplace more important to be than I do. And this parable, for me, kind of sounds like this little story experience that I'm talking about here. It's just a matter of, um, you know, my eyes saw the same thing she did. We experienced the same thing at the same time. But how I came to um, uh, feel it or care about it or actually interact with it was totally different than hers. Um, and 
I catch myself doing that all the time. And, 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 and some, sometimes I, I think, um, because I'm on the boat that she's on and because more people think the way she does than the way I do, I should just jump off the boat. You know, like how do I, how do I, how do I, um, uh, how do I reflect back whatever it is I'm thinking to somebody, uh, to help them? So the, the idea of being in the swamp, I'm, I'm digesting all this. I'm so, talking out loud so I can hear the idea of being in the swamp and actually, um, uh, showing somebody, um, another possibility without any attachment to that possibility being better than theirs or right or anything, um, is, uh, kind of where I hang out a lot. Yeah. You know, and you know, if, if, if we zoom back, it's kind of, you know, it's why I help you do this podcast, <laughs> you know, um, you got all the words and all the parables in your head and, I got a few pieces of sound equipment, you know, like we're, we're both in the swamp. We're just with different skill sets. Right. And the weird part about this, and I want to come back to something in a sec, but the weird part about this parable, and I've been, I don't know, simmering in the swamp and the boat and the ocean, the beach and the mountain for over 20 years, just because for whatever reason that just hit home for me because mm-hmm. it's all of it all at the same time forever. Right. No matter if you're sitting at the swamp ass deep and you're going, ha ha, look at me, I'm in the swamp. You're just back on the boat. Right. Because you're telling people how important it is to be on the swamp. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you're just like, yeah. And then we, maybe that's what we just have to keep doing until we realize that, you know, there there is a humility and, and an innate collaboration to this that we've left behind in, in our impatience. So real quick, something happened actually like two hours before you got here. Uh, so obviously no one listening to this knows this, but I recently moved to this cool place at the end of this mountain road and I uh, was driving home to, you know, get ready for the podcast with Anthony, it's my happy Sunday thing to do. And, uh, it's a nice winding mountain road. And as I'm coming home, I noticed down, you know, the road that there's a woman on a scooter, uh, kind of coming towards me and she's looking off into the forest on this side. It's beautiful springtime here in British Columbia. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. Of course, you're going to look at the trees if you're <laughs> willing to. And then she turns her head and she looks at the other side of the road. And this is still like, I don't know, a couple of, maybe a hundred meters down the road. And I'm like, one, this is going to go bad because she's drifting into my lane and she's not turning her head forward at all. And I'm slowing down and I'm slowing down and I put my hand up and I'm ready to hit the horn. Cause a part of me, like the Kung Fu teacher in me is like, wake up. You're you as a person should not be comfortable that unaware of the fact you're driving down a road <laughs> looking at trees. But I stopped myself because I thought, of a, an experience I had about two days before where I was driving in town and this is town. I mean, we're talking small T town. We have five traffic lights in the entire <laughs> city. <laughs> There's a couple of stop signs. Come on. There's traffic lights. We have five. It's, yeah. it's amazing. <laughs> we have rush minute, not rush hour. <laughs> I'm turning the corner and some pedestrian looks at me and gives me this really offended look because maybe I creeped at like two or three feet ahead of the usual Canadian place to get ready to turn. And I just felt kind of like weirdly offended, but then weirdly bad. Like, did I just do like a really bad, weird traffic thing? Like, I mean, it, it hung with me for like a minute as I'm driving down the road going, you know, who, whose karma was that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> did I, did I offend him or is he just a naturally offended person? So there I am, you know, two hours, well, three hours ago, 
not hitting my horn because I didn't want her to feel like she should feel ashamed as a driver for not paying attention. Hmm. So I just pulled off the road and went down to like minimal, still creeping along until she noticed me and got back into her own lane. And I just smiled and nodded and she sort of smiled and nodded and kept going. And there was a part of me going, what would have been the best choice here? I don't know. I got back on the road and came home. But it was just that moment of like, you know, what, what would right action look like? What would be the consequence of me scaring this poor, poor person? Would she feel like, oh, some belligerent guy in a, I have a big truck. Mm-hmm. So some belligerent guy in a big truck honked his horn at some, you know, demure woman on a, on a scooter, you know, and then I, I played it out in like a tenth of a second, all the ways it could go horribly wrong. Wow. And then I just sort of like went, wow, that, that's, an, it's interesting that my mind was, you know, all a flutter about all that stuff, given the podcast we were going to do today. So it was just interesting that when you get conscious of all that consequence, pre-sequence stuff with people, uh, it can be a madhouse, but at least you're not an asshole <laughs> running on automatic. <laughs> <laughs> it might be neurotic for a couple of years trying to like work out the details, but Hmm. there's a definitely, you know, when, when people think of like, I should maybe work on, you know, becoming more spiritual, like, yeah, focus on the word work. (laughs) 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 Capital W. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Uh, it's, this is a bit of a, um, deeper subject that we could sort of we could bounce. I, I've got other ideas to, 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 to counter we, your we, ideas. We, we could just do podcast number two. What happened after the boat? Because <laughs> we don't. There's not much else to really add. To well, that, I, and I, that was good. That was going to be my point. It's like you know, we, we've got these ideas. We're going back and forth. We're all kind of excited and giddy because there's not much oxygen in the room anymore yeah. after speaking for so long. And it's like, uh, it, I, it, I, I think this. We do need to stop it and just let it sort of digest and, and sit in, eh? Yeah, and that's the last thing I want to say to people is, you know. This, this is just a parable. It's just an opportunity to kind of flip through one really wise way of choosing to observe the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then it's up to you. Clearly, in this kind of a parable, there's nobody who's winning. Yeah. Right? There's just people becoming, I don't know, just aware. Mm-hmm. I'm getting distracted. I'm still thinking about me in the swamp saying, hey, I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> and then being transported back to the boat. <laughs> <laughs> Shovel in the coal. <laughs> My mind just went. <laughs> yeah, that's fun with parables. It's kind of holographic. Yeah. Well, that's all kinds of awesome. <laughs> uh, well, um, it's been over an hour that we've been chatting about this. At least. The idea or concept or whatever it is of kama, karma. And... Uh, I don't know if I'm any further ahead, but I'm a whole lot more um, introspective than I was when I, when I first started chatting with you about this. Uh, this has been Fusion Health Radio, episode 52, Karma. And uh, if you like what you heard today, um, and it all made sense to you, and you think somebody else <laughs> would like to hear this. <laughs> I love how trepidatious your voice but anybody else might want to hear this. <laughs> Uh, please share it with one of your your friends. You can reach to, out to us on Facebook. Uh, you could support us on Patreon, if this made sense to you. And I'm only saying that just to make Michael laugh behind the microphone some more. 
Um, I think this is the the insanity, the slapstickedness of karma. Absolutely, it's, it's totally. Absolutely. <laughs> we're just busting a gut here at the end of the the podcast. Uh, thanks for showing up today, Michael. This has Absolutely. been very very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, tune in uh, next time when we talk about something. Uh, the three whys of addiction. Three whys of addiction. Yeah. Oh, that'll be good. Cool. Uh, again, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I'm just gonna shut up. <laughs> Michael's high over there. I know it. Um, Thanks for tuning in, folks. This is uh, Fusion Health Radio, and uh, we'll see you in the next podcast. I'm not. (laughs) You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.